Nancy. Hi, Meg. Want to talk about coaching? Sure, Meg. Jump in. Welcome to Clarity Call with Meg Kirstead and Nancy Sun. A conversation between coaches about coaching. Join us as we examine all the thoughts and questions we have about coaching and coaching culture in our quest to become better coaches. Spoiler alert, we are two human beings with human brains making this up as we go along. So we invite you to use your being and your brain while you listen in. Hi, Meg. How are you doing today? I'm actually fabulous today. I had a good day. We are recording this um, at the end of December and it is cold and rainy here in Sonoma. So um, I'm, I'm kind of loving the you know, post-holiday vibe, which it feels appropriate to record our capitalism episode after Christmas, what is arguably one of the more capitalist holidays we celebrate, um, depending on how you personally uh, celebrate the holidays. So today we're talking about capitalism. <laughs> totally, totally simple, easy topic to unravel, right? Yeah. What do you think compelled us to do an episode on capitalism? I think money is part of literally everything every human just about not all, but almost every human on the planet has to deal with nowadays. We, in society, we often use money for the exchange of goods and services. So um, it's particularly appropriate for this podcast because as coaches, most of us are business owners, or even if we don't own a business, we make money from the work that we do. Yeah. It's so funny because the way you said it, you were like, very Wu-Tang clan. You were like money rules everything around me, <laughs> except they say cash, right? Have money dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um w- yes, I totally one, I think capitalism is a group of thoughts, right? That we as a society have opted into. And then we have created systems and structures in space and time to reinforce that group of thoughts. And I totally agree that a lot of our work as coaches, like a lot of my clients come to me because they not only have creative goals, but they also have career, professional, or financial goals tied to their creative goals. So maybe they're not satisfied just like having a craft or a skill or, you know, making art. They also are curious about how can I profit from, make a livelihood from art, which is a financial goal, which gets us into the group of thoughts that we call capitalism. Right. And, and I think your perspective is going to be particularly interesting here because I know or at least I guess a lot of particularly creative sort of feel like money and creativity are often at odds. Um, Or um, I actually work with a lot of people who are sort of like big hearted do-gooders. Like they're all in, a lot of them are in tech because they like see the possibility of technology to make the world a better place. Um, But of course, often it's tied to money and it's sometimes it, it's not even as simple as like, I want to make money while doing something good. It sometimes it's 
like, how do I survive while, while doing this thing that I'm passionate about? Because one of the things that, at least in the United States, um, we have as a, an issue is you need money to literally live. You need money for housing. You need money for food. You need money um, to not, you know, freeze in the winter. So um, it, there's, there's both the subsistence part. And then I think some of the stuff that we'll probably be getting into is like, what if you have some of the basics what are the capitalist structures that either tell us we should make more or that we shouldn't make more because i think i think that's something i certainly deal with a lot with my clients is this guilt over wanting to have more money yeah so it's really interesting because we're in this conversation we're like capitalism is just a form of exchanging money for goods and services. Um, but it is the contemporary form that our Western industrial society, at least how we see it as two US citizens is playing out. And it's also interesting because what I heard was perhaps my clients might have an art versus money binary. And perhaps your clients might have a like altruism or like philanthropic versus like money profit kind of binary. And like that is something that to unpack and maybe we'll get into in this episode. To caveat it up front, this is definitely going to be one of our episodes where we make some observations We ask a lot of questions, but as we are kind of just beginning our inquiry into internalized capitalism and the impact of capitalism, we definitely think we're going to (laughs) be maybe having more question marks than like periods and declarative statements. Yeah. And, and I also want to just step back a little bit for anyone who's like an actual economist listening to this, neither of us are economists and we're using sort of the definition of capitalism being an economic system where private people own and control things and obtain assets and stuff. And money is the currency that we currently use, but we aren't going to go into the details of what separates capitalism versus a socialist government or things like that. If you want to read more, I'm sure we would be happy to discuss it because I know I need to learn more. And I say this as someone who has a political science degree. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about is really our current manifestation of capitalism in Western society as as practiced in 2021, give or take. Yes. So this is not, we're not historians either. We're not going back to Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, in terms of what philosophically (laughs) like capitalism is or can mean. We're looking at how in particular it is practiced and particularly our experience of how we've seen capitalism practice and how we've been practicing capitalism. So one thing I loved was how you put that capitalism is a group of thoughts. In terms of the thoughts that I'm thinking of, that I am interested in and curious in unpacking in this, in a conversation about money and capitalism is this is kind of the inner work that I see a lot of people have bought wholesale, including myself, which I think is interesting to to look at. So one thing that I've noticed in terms of thoughts 
is there is the belief that like progress must always be positive, linear, and upward. So that is a very much, I don't know what came first, but it is very much a part of what I would call shareholder mentality. And this may be in part because I've been watching a lot of succession lately, but how we see this play out is, um, for instance, the stock market, the NASDAQ, et cetera. We might know just based on history that things go in cycles. However, (laughs) the way that we practice it is we still want every quarter to be better than the last quarter, especially if we were the leaders behind this quarter. And so we will do whatever it takes to ensure that we are on a positive, upward, profitable trajectory, no matter what. And so what this can create in terms of impact is results like profit over people, profit over like well-being, quality of life. Short term at the expense of the long term. I can speak to a lot of that, particularly in the tech industry. Yeah. You're always focusing on the next quarter and having it be, you know, better than the current quarter. And um, I might get this wrong because it's been a while since I looked at it. But if I recall correctly, if you're a public company and you serve on a board, like you actually have a responsibility that it might be legal, it might not, but to essentially increase the value of the company. Like that is part of your duty to your shareholders is to actually make your company more and more uh, valuable over time. So I think it's literally built into a lot of the legal frameworks we have set up around this. Obviously, it's been a while. So once again, like if I get this wrong, please correct me. But it's always upward. You hear like people talking about, is the economy growing or shrinking? And if the economy is shrinking, that's like a crisis. <laughs> um, that's what I, I mean, a recession is. Like, you know, essentially the economy is shrinking and there are lots of consequences of that. But we definitely view economy growing as good an economy shrinking is bad. Like that is just sort of one of the things that we sort of take at face value. And we take that this is actually the, like how the economy is doing, like the health of the economy and the health being like always upward, positive linear progress. We take that to be like a sign of how well we are doing. So basically a national level, right? We're internalizing the our worth and our value and our well-being, and we are marrying it to whether or not we are quote unquote creating value for our shareholders, like regardless of the cost. So that's like a big thing that I see because I also see that with my clients on a very small level where they think that their worth and their value as a human is tied to whatever their job is and then how well they are doing at their job. Yes, that essentially the money you make from your job is a direct reflection of your value as a human being or the value of your work, which, spoiler alert, it's not. (laughs) For lots of different reasons, Um, it's just not. We can see this just in the fact that 
we know that two people who are performing the same job, if one is a man and one is a woman, the woman is going to be paid less. We like if all things held equal. We have lots of research to support that. If anyone wants to disagree with that, sorry, you're, you need to go read the research. So uh, yeah, we really do tie our worth to how much money we make or the outward representations of how much wealth we have, whether it's a house, a car, clothes, like all these kind of things that are essentially also part of capitalism because we, for the economy to continue growing, the interesting thing is that we need to be consuming more. So unsurprisingly, it's created this feedback loop where we need to be having more, buying more stuff, acquiring more things to keep the economy in an upward trajectory. So of course we tie it like, oh, if the economy is growing, then I should be growing too. And we often tie it to, you know, monetary growth. And a thing that I've noticed with my creatives is also because capitalism as a group of thoughts came up during the industrial age. So there's also thoughts that are like time thoughts, right? Where it's like the the worth that you create at work is tied to how much time you spend, right? And how effective and efficient you are with your time. So if you can optimize how many widgets you build per hour, then you are a more valuable employee and you are a more valuable person. And if you can work more hours to make more widgets, that also means you are more valuable. So we also see something like how ableism is reinforced, for instance, by capitalism, because if you have the capacity to be more efficient and productive and work more hours, you are rewarded. Right. And I bring the this- output, the output is at least it used to be essentially almost linearly related to how much time you put in. You like, there was a finite limit on the number of widgets you could produce each hour based on the current technology and stuff. And you just needed someone to man the machine or woman the machine. Um, And, and, but now what's interesting is our economies have shifted about sort of where we get value from and where our labor comes from. And it isn't that like one-to-one input output. You can argue whether or not that was always true anyways, but um, now we are in what is, I think, widely considered like a knowledge economy. And I've heard, in fact, that we are shifting to a creative economy. And the interesting thing there is that our brains are the things that are valuable and like the knowledge and skills and thoughts and beliefs in our brains are the things that make us valuable. And as it turns out, you can't do a one-to-one input output with your brain. It just doesn't work. There's all sorts of interesting cognitive research about this, but like if you're doing anything like cognitively challenging or creative, you're maybe going to get four or five hours a day max. And that's like if you are already in a well-adjusted, well-slept, well-nourished state. So I think one of the reasons a lot of the well-being mental health stuff is becoming more and more important is because our resources are no longer literally like physical bodies in a place it's stuff inside our heads and if the stuff inside your head is being limited by essentially sleep deprivation or you know anxiety some sort of chemical imbalance then yeah you aren't going to be able to to do the things that you want to do 
or work how you want. <laughs> yeah. And what we're pointing to is the thing that might be limiting you could also be your attachment or unconscious or conscious bias towards capitalist thinking where you're not, you may not be able to make the shift to an information, a knowledge, a creative society or economy because you're used to what I would call valuing the shallow work versus the deep work where you're putting the expectation on yourself that you need to be incredibly efficient, incredibly productive and put in longer hours because that has previously been rewarded from the industrial revolution era and from that society, which is something that came up with capitalism. Yeah. I I mean, I know personally, now that I'm in control of my own schedule, the hours I work, I get so much more done because I work way less. And I actually recognize the natural patterns of like how my brain works. I spent so much energy, like forcing myself into an office, doing like a nine to five kind of job on that schedule that all of my energy was going to doing that rather than, you know, actually doing the stuff that was part of my job. So like now I just get so much done in so little time because my brain is just more efficient. It's, it's in a better nervous system state. I just have more resources. And I would also be curious in terms of how much of the work you do for yourself as an entrepreneur, because you are your own boss and you are your own employee. My hunch is a lot of the busy work, right? Anything you would have to do to be on or perform for someone, you know, a manager, right? Kind of gets deleted because right now you're working to create value for your clients or for, you know, in your marketing, et cetera, um, going back more to like an entrepreneurial state instead of playing the game of like climbing the corporate ladder. So the thing that, a thing that I see is there is a return to creating value and the value that you create being divorced from you and being something that can create money as opposed to like Nancy, right? Nancy creates money and Nancy's worth is dependent on what's in her bank account. There, so there's a healthy, for me, I find a very healthy externalization and then like decoupling my value as a human from the value that my business or my work provides. And like the dollar amount of my work is depending on how other people perceive its value as opposed to some kind of time calculus or some kind of like struggle calculus um, that might have been happening more during the industrial age. Like, you know, cars look complicated, you know, so that must be really valuable because it looks hard or something like that. I think this brings up an interesting point about how value is not an objective thing. So we think, for example, like, I don't know what the stock price of Salesforce, I used to work at Salesforce is, but it has a stock price, you know, out in the world. And as a result, you can sort of say the company is worth this many dollars. But the reality is it's not like some magical objective thing. It's because the stock price is a certain amount and the stock price gets adjusted 
by arbitrary like things happening in the world um you know if some like elon musk who now like apparently has the ability to affect the economy by saying shit on twitter said something about salesforce it would affect its sales price and thus affect the value of the company so one thing to realize is like value is entirely based on our own thoughts so something that might be valuable to me might be worth say three thousand dollars to me might be worth three thousand dollars to you um so there is no like objective value to your coaching or your business it is how the value is just based on someone's thoughts and so as a result you can decide you have you know a million dollar business even if you don't have million dollars in revenue because as it turns out value is a pretty subjective intersubjective thing and on top of that you can also apply that same conversation to your own opinion of your own value as a human so it does not have to be determined. You don't have to use a financial marker. You also don't have to use anybody else's opinions or thoughts unless you choose to. That is available to you, but it is always your choice in terms of how you want to perceive your own value. And relatedly, I think there are some like organizations that do this for businesses, but you can also decide that the value of your business is entirely decoupled from money or the value of your work. Maybe the thing that determines value for you isn't the money. It's, you know, how many people you've helped. Or um, one that I think about, because I have an environmental conservation master's degree, is like the environmental impact of a business. Are we being stewards of what we're doing? Because right now, uh, environmental impact is not <laughs> included in a stock price. So are we being stewards of the planet? Is a business being a steward of planet? So like, you can also decide that you are going to determine your value as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, entirely divorced from cash money dollars. Yeah, I think about, um, is it Gravity Payments and Dan Prince? Yes, probably. And I don't know how he values or measures the value of his business. However, I know the impact he is making by paying all of his employees a minimum of 70K a year is it changes the conversation about uh, the quality of life that he is advocating and modeling and showing is possible in an economic system. So... With that, like, I think we've covered some of the things that most intrigue us about the internal impact of capitalism. Do we want to move on to how we see that manifest in the world, like the external impact? Absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. So one of the things that we notice when a bunch of people buy into these thoughts wholesale is it creates a huge in unequal distribution of wealth. So we're looking particularly at the United States and you can, particularly during pandemic, people have really talked about how that wealth gap has been stratified and exacerbated and worsened <laughs> over the course of pandemic. So you'll see statistics like um, billionaires, the top 1%, maybe even fewer than the top 1% have um, made an additional one point, I think the most recent number is 7 trillion since the beginning of pandemic. 
at the same time that there have been people who've been impacted and conversations that have been had because there are people who cannot work, are unemployed, have, what are they called? They're underemployed. So in contrast to the top 1% or of and billionaires making 1.7 trillion additional dollars. So what this makes me think of is the idea that depending on how much wealth you have, how much money you have, however many resources you have, the value of that resource is different. So let me explain. So so to someone like Jeff Bezos, who who has monopoly money, like ridiculous, I don't know what the number is today, many, many, many billions of dollars, like the value of a dollar to him is incredibly different than the value of a dollar to someone who makes minimum wage and lives in California. Like that dollar to that person is just so much more valuable than the same dollar to Jeff Bezos, which is an interesting thing because we think of money as like, you know, $1 is $1, but it's not. Because he could literally like wipe his ass with dollar bills every single day, like $100 bills and not care. This, again, it kind of is a callback to our earlier conversation about perceived value. Yeah, exactly. So one thing to think about that, that I always think about as I'm growing my business is like, what decisions would having more money allow me to make that, you know, having less money might make harder? Because the reality is more money often means freedom and it means freedom of decisions. It means freedom to live where you want. It means, you know, freedom to not take a job that sucks. Um, so one of the things that I certainly personally have dealt with is like the idea of like acquiring wealth is feels icky to me. It, it, it has, I'm, I'm getting past it, but and a lot of that is tied to this, like, once you have enough, you shouldn't have more. But the reality is more often leads to more freedom. And there probably is a cap on that. I would guess there is a cap where, you know, I don't know, maybe it's $10 billion. More money doesn't actually make a difference in terms of, like, the decisions you make. But the decision you make when you have $1 in your account, the decisions get harder than if you have, you know, a million dollars in your account. They don't have to be, but I would say the difficulty setting goes up. Well, I think it's subjective. It depends on the person. And there are still a lot of wealthy people who still have very limiting money beliefs. A hundred percent. I think over here, what I, what I think about is money is a tool. And if we're looking at Maslow's needs, right, uh, it is frequently the tool that gives us access to cover our basic survival needs. Of course, you put it much better than I than I did, because that's essentially what I say. Like, if you have your basic needs met, you can do different things than if you don't have your basic needs met. And one of the things that I think, um, you know, how much money you have is a circumstance. But I do think where you are in sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs has the possibility to affect how you think about money, if nothing else. <laughs> Yeah. So I think over here, I, what we both might be pointing to is um, in when we have an unequal distribution of wealth and there are people who have, do not have access to financial tools, and that means they may not have access to having their basic survival needs met, then we're living in a society where 
there could have been in you know on an, in another parallel universe right the possibility of everybody being in out of fight or flight out of their parasympathetic nervous system um and able to simply thrive and focus on what maslow would call the being needs right love safety belonging connection self actualization and what we have instead is a society right now where just fundamentally there are some people whose basic needs are not getting met. Yes. yes. So curious, like what impact does that have on all of society or us? Like knowing that, you know, that's possible for me, that I might be somebody whose needs might not be met in playing this particular like socioeconomic game. Yes. And like, I think the nervous system point is very well made because the reality is, I mean, we know just from research that um, essentially lower socioeconomic status, I don't know what the numbers are right now, correlates to like higher rates of heart attacks and, and, you know, chronic stress and all of this kind of stuff. And once you get it to a certain point, roughly speaking, you know, it, it at least levels off a little bit. So in some ways, what we're saying is like that bottom chunk where, you know, the scarcity of resources just makes it so that a lot of people are constantly sort of in this activated state affects, you know, healthcare because there are more people who are sick and ill and it affects the systems we're able to build. We can't build bridges if there aren't people to build the bridges. So I think really thinking about how as societies we pay the, the cost for like this unequal distribution of wealth is interesting. And as coaches, like, how are we helping or hurting that? Um, you know, are we, is this something that we're even thinking of? Because it is something that affects the people we're coaching. I also think, and this is something that Meg, you brought up when we were talking, when we were talking again about the external impact of capitalism is when we fixate on money as the metric, we forget about so many other metrics that are negatively impacted in the pursuit of money. So I think this was you channeling your environmentalism and environmental science degree, but talking about how, um, you know, the government or humans off the clock are paying environmentally the price for the profit that companies have been seeing. Then they might even be paying it with their well-being, right? Because if you think about like Detroit and their water situation, or we look, we start when we're right now investigating other alternatives in terms of energy, and you think about, hmm, do we really know how viable fracking is? Because the company will be able to absorb the profit of that should it happen. But who is absorbing the other costs or consequences? And that's something to think about in terms of who we're being as consumers and who we're being as business owners, when we're playing the game of creating more money and freedom for ourselves, 
okay, but like, what is the cost of that? What are some things that we may not be seeing? What is in our blind spot? Just because it is not something that we're used to showing ourselves. We're used to somebody else shouldering that burden. I really love the idea. And I think I'll do this for myself of coming up with sort of alternate metrics to sort of measure the success of a business. And it includes things like environmental impact, at least for me. But I imagine like everyone could sort of put together their own list of things that matter to them and measure their business on that in addition to maybe looking at the money because the reality is we do need money to live, at least in the United States. Um, Not every country, but most of them. So money can be one measure, but maybe like start looking at other stuff and start like shifting your perspective just from like the money focus. But to sort of like be devil's advocate, like money, like wanting more money isn't necessarily a bad thing. So like both let's look at things other than money, but also like money isn't bad. Thought. So like I am, this is really interesting. So I read an interview with this woman who wrote this book. I think it is called The Trouble with White Women. Yes. And it is about white feminism, but I'm bringing this up in the context of capitalism because she, in this interview, she talks about the reason why like white women the only thing that is stopping them from fully actualizing their privilege is the gender or sex that they were born into. Otherwise, they would be able to be as fully expressed as a white supremacist as (laughs) their male counterparts. This is the, the criticism that she has with white feminism. And it just makes me think in terms of capitalism, which is Because you see a lot of people tie feminism to like, I want to be able to make as much or more money than a man. And this is a white man, right? Because white women make more money than perhaps other demographics, right? In terms of the racial wealth gap, et cetera. So over here, I've been very curious about capitalism because is making more money like how valuable of a metric is it? Because I've made it a point in my business to support other women business owners, other BIPOC business owners. So this way I can consciously give them my support. However, I don't think I've been getting like some props for doing that and being like, see, nothing bad happens when a woman makes more money. And I'm like, actually, that was a conscious choice that I made. It wasn't just because I was a woman that, that I decided that I did this, right? There are plenty of women who I think don't do this. So over here, like I'm personally navigating how I feel about having money be a measure or the measure of how my business is doing. And also because it is simply a tool and like, I, you know, if we wanted to get morbid, like when we die, how much is that really going to matter? You know, the money doesn't come with you in the coffin or into the afterlife or whatever you believe. <laughs> it's, I mean, I guess there are some religions that actually do think that, but, um, but 
oftentimes we don't, you know, your bank account's not following you um, to whatever comes next. And it's very true. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. It's, it's a, I think, I don't think we're gonna have any answers for this one because I think this is a long standing debate, but like, is more money necessarily good? And I think in many cases it's not, um, even if it's in the hand of a woman, even if it's in the hand of a minority. I think what you're pointing to is maybe that it also requires some consciousness. So like, I like the idea of, you know, if you're a good person now, you're gonna continue to be a, um, a good person with more money and then also have more tools, more resources with which to like do good things. Yeah. But if you're a bad person, I mean, this is a binary that doesn't really exist, but like if you're someone who, for example, doesn't value some of these things, then when you have more money, you're probably just gonna do more of the things that maybe other people might yeah. think is morally bad. So it, it, it's a challenging thing, especially because at the end of the day, we do know that money equals power. Like it, it is a form of power in Western society. There's a reason why, why the wealthy tend to have more political capital while, why we have to do things like you know, have court cases around how political fundraisers are done to say nothing of, you know, just in day-to-day -day life, if you have more, more money, you are more able to say, pay someone to do the things that you don't want to do, focus on the things that you do want to do, et cetera, et cetera. Like money is a powerful tool, but like it can also be used for ill. Well, the thing that I want to point to with that is for me, perhaps it's very chicken or egg in terms of like, is that a capitalism thing? Is that like, what, like, how do all of these systems work together to like reinforce the existing power structure? Because there, I do think that there are people who are incredibly powerful, who probably don't make as much money as again, these like one percenters that we may be speaking to. I think about um, like the gentleman during the like January 6th insurrection, right? Who I believe won, I'm not sure, there was so much drama about like the Medal of Honor stuff, but it was the Capitol Police officer who like misdirected the Capitol rioters. And it's like, hmm, this person was, they probably don't make a lot of money because they get paid a capital officer salary. And would I say that they are less powerful and less influential and less valuable because of what they did? Um, I don't think so. Or I think about like Mother Teresa, or I think about Stacey Abrams. Like, I don't know what's on Stacey Abrams, like personal income tax return. We might find out now because she's running for governor of Georgia, but, or she has previously, so maybe those numbers are out there, but it's like, these are people I find who do have tremendous power and influence that is decoupled or the correlation is like less direct in terms of their finances. A common argument we hear that we might buy wholesale is well, like if I want to have more power and I want to have more influence, I need to have more money. And, and it's just like, 
is that true? And I think what you're pointing to is something that's that's pretty key, which is power comes in many forms and there are many tools with which to have more power. Money can be one of them, but there are a bunch of others. Yeah. And I say that also because like there's an implicitness to this where like more is better, which I think I don't know if that is like a part of like the capitalism group of thoughts. Right. Where so like we need to have like more power is better. Right. And even if you use it for good or like more influence is better, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, if the shadow side is scarcity, like the light side, <laughs> right, is like the winning part of that conversation. <sighs> so what do we do about this? I mean, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, I feel like I, I want to sum that up as like, you know, power corrupts, <laughs> money corrupts, everything is the worst. Capitalism is going to destroy us all. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> but like, I think being very conscious of that is really important because we live in a capitalist society and we also charge for coaching. At least, you know, the people who are probably in our spheres definitely charge for coaching and they often charge a lot of money for coaching. I certainly charge a lot of money for my coaching. Um, so what what do we want to do about it as coaches? Yeah, what do we what do we want our relationship to capitalism to be? Yeah, and particularly how do we want to use this awareness that we are still ourselves like peeling the onion of awareness on? How do we want to use it as coaches and how do we want to have this conversation with our clients? I think one thing to get very to get to very like coach speak is like thinking about your goals. I mean, is your goal to like, you know, dismantle certain power structures? If so, what are the tools you are going to need to do it? Um, and maybe money is one part of that. But if your goal is, for example, I don't know, to live a happy, fulfilling life, then maybe more money is part of that, but maybe it isn't. Um, it might, and, and there's nothing wrong if that is one of the tool, tools you use to get there. I certainly use money as a tool to make my life better on a very regular basis. Um, so like, I happily pay people to do things that I really don't like doing and that makes my life a lot better. Yeah, so one way that I use this in my coaching, so from after establishing goals is also like looking at what obstacles are there and if those obstacles are just internalized capitalism. So there's a lot of false binaries that we discussed in this conversation where it's like, if I want to realize my goal, it may require a lot of time. It may require a lot of struggle. It may require a lot of effort and I may not be worthy of it, right? So one way that, that I've seen this show up is to really like decouple self-worth from the pursuit of your goal. And also like things that would have you talk yourself out of realizing what you want might be because you have this idea that you can't create art and make money or you can't be a good person and make money. Um, or like, you know, you're, if you're particularly, if you're investing in yourself through coaching, 
the goal that you need to be speaking out into the universe needs to be a financial goal so that you can receive a return on your investment. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, and it makes me think that how it often shows up in my coaching is that people are using essentially the amount of money they have make, create as evidence for their worth. Like straight up, like, you know, if I create $160,000 a year, I am worth $160,000 a year. And just questioning them and pulling it apart. Where is that really true? Is, is that, is that the metric you want to use? But also like recognizing that value is intersubjective and arbitrary and like not using it as a weapon against yourself. The amount of money you make, whether it's big or small, the amount of money you have, whether it's big or small, the amount of things you have, the amount of time you have, all of these are things you can weaponize against yourself and use as evidence that you are less than. Yeah. And it's just is, and then when you have that distinction and that's how you're relating to these tools, it's like, do you want to keep that relationship? And what, if you choose to keep that relationship, what is the impact going to be on you? And what's the impact going to be on the future that you're playing for? Yes, yes. Because if we think beyond ourselves, oftentimes the equation changes a little bit, which is something that we covered a little bit in the collective collectivism versus individualism episodes. So of course, all of these things are interrelated and complex and could we could you know do entire seasons just on one topic. Um, one thing I do want to point out is, you know, the choice to not make money is a privilege. Um, the only people who can choose to not make money in the society that we live in are people who already have a lot of it. Wait, tell me more. Tell me more about choose to not make money. So, um, for example, like volunteering your time, like it rather than charging for your services. And this happens a lot. There's a lot of like pushback for charging for things related to emotional well-being and and health and all these kind of things because it's something that we require and all deserve but um you can choose like there's some people who are like I'm gonna go and volunteer and I'm not gonna charge very much money for my services because I don't need the, the underlying thing is I don't need it the reality is you know for many of us coaching is a vocation it's a job it's some it's how we literally you know meet the bottom of Maslow's pyramid. We provide housing, we provide warmth, we provide food. So like there is nothing wrong with that. And choosing not to make money is something that's only afforded to people who already have it. That is so interesting. I say that because I have clients who don't make money. And what I mean by that is like, I would assume like they don't they are not filling out a W-2 form and working for an employer. Um, and I don't know how I would unpack that because the people that I'm thinking of are also women and they have like family support. And part of me doesn't want to necessarily write that off as privilege because also historically that was the only way that women could quote unquote, make money, depending on what socioeconomic class you were, what race you were, what was socially acceptable, you know, and to put like a certain 
qualifier, like, because in that paradigm, it, it kind of makes it seem like making money is good, right? And like, when you say choosing not to make money is a privilege, it's like, oh, it's, there's like, I'm hearing it as there's like some bad stigma on it. And I have so many clients who are not investing in themselves long-term or in their artistic careers because they think that they need to earn money now. So they will literally think I, I, before I can like play the long game of having like my movie payoff, I need to be working as a, a Starbucks barista, you know? So like, I think about that. And again, this might just be where our clients are coming from and what best serves them. <laughs> right. And so for me, a lot of what I'm, what I stand for, for my clients is really being like, Hey, um, like industrial society would have you want to make money now. Right. Um, whereas like an information or a creative economy would allow you to do time to do the deep work for a payoff that may be later. So we'll see. I don't think we're disagreeing at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, I do still think it, it is a privilege to not have to provide for your basic needs. And that would be a privilege Um, Like, for example, if you live in a more socialist country, like that is a privilege of living in a socialist country. Privilege also just often has like a negative stigma of privilege, but it's just like, it's just sort of what are the circumstances that give you more of an advantage? And the reality is like, you need to have shelter, warmth, food, you know, basic needs met, regardless of how they get met. The choice to provide those and or not for yourself or your family whatever, is something that, that isn't a bad thing. Like if you have to do that, if you have to make money to do that, that isn't something to feel guilty about. Yeah. I think like what we're ultimately saying is like, you know, circumstances are neutral basically. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what is the story that you want to tell yourself that would support you being with your current circumstances? Right. And, and, Sometimes the the resources might be like using credit or like there's also the interesting like long-term versus short-term stuff here of if you are willing to not make money now, do you have the ability to maybe lengthen your time horizon? So overall you end up having more money, but you still probably have to have those basic needs met. Yeah. So this has been a long, windy, circuitous conversation. So thanks everyone for being in it with us as we basically, again, just offer our thoughts, investigate and question our thoughts and create more questions from questioning our thoughts, but just at least taking some distance away from just a default traffic pattern that we might have with money or with capitalism to see what we might not have seen. Um, So I guess we'll just end it with our normal one thing we love. It'll be interesting to see what our answer is and its relationship to money. (laughs) It's definitely, it's uh, most of the time, it's going to be something we've acquired with money, Um, which once again, not a bad thing. And it's also bad to like have things that are not entirely necessary. I, I just want to point that out. Like there is nothing wrong with 
having things that make you happy or make your toes warm or whatever. Like it's okay. So now I know that making toes warm makes Meg happy. hundred <laughs> percent true. Actually. Yeah. Because my, the thing I'm loving right now um, is the pair of like fuchsia uh, furry Kate Spade pink slippers that one of my best friends got for me for Christmas. Um, actually it was a pre-Christmas gift and man, I hadn't realized how cold my toes are pretty much all the time because now I'm wearing the slippers all the time and I'm like, wow, I'm really a lot happier. <laughs> and, and it doesn't hurt that they're like pink and fuzzy and match my hair. Um, so yes, I really like the slippers that I got because they're making my toes warm. And as it turns out, toe warmth has an effect on my well-being and happiness. Amazing. Over here, my thing I love is my brain's subconscious and unconscious, particularly because my dreams have been weird. Basically, like I had a weird dream period immediately when pandemic started. But this weird dream chapter began with this pregnancy. So every night I can guaranteed one or more like incredibly weird dreams. So it's like very entertaining. It's very predictable because they'll always be weird, but in a way that I don't expect. And it's just like, oh, I don't, this isn't streaming. This isn't like, I don't have to pay for this but my brain gets to entertain itself for however long the REM cycles are over and over again. And it's like something to look forward to. It's like, I'm thinking of this in particular, because I had a dream basically that the friends that I currently have as a 30 something, it was as if we all lived together in like a sorority house when I was in college and I've never been in a sorority, right? And so, and it was like senior week where we're graduating. So we're just like doing bar crawls and like packing up and like, we're not doing any work. And that was basically the dream of like hanging out as if we were 22 with like my 30 something friends and like, and all of like the drama that we've been having as a friend group, like per distilled and personified in like college drama you know that was kind of what was happening in the dream which is very interesting have you been keeping a dream journal or anything are you like keeping track of this for a future book to write about trippy dreams I did keep track of it in early pandemic so I have at least one like really good rom-com idea I haven't been keeping track of them recently but you are making me reconsider this awesome (laughs) all right well that concludes our very complex circuitous, crazy capitalism episode. And I know my brain feels like, uh, you know, pouring out of my ears. So good times. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us with Clarity Call. Want to take this conversation about coaching online? We'd really love to hear from you. So you should reach out to us on social media. You can reach out to me, Nancy. I am a coach for creatives. I help you create the art, money, and impact you want. You can find me on Instagram at the Nancy Sun. And if you want to connect with me, Meg Kirstead, 
Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Meg Kirstead, and that's spelled K-I-E-R-S-T-E-A-D. I help ADHDers and other neurodivergent badasses redesign their work and lives to fit with their unique brains. And I also have an incredible community called the Black Sheep Playground, which is the best place in the entire world for you to come and play if you have ADHD. Great. You can find our Instagram handles in the show notes. So feel free to give us a follow. Until next time.